Okay, Judges chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with you, continue our study in the book of Judges together. If you weren't with us last time in our study in Judges, we kind of covered obviously a number of background things as far as some foundation of what we'll be looking at in the book of Judges, but we'll see in chapter 2 tonight really a, a very clear description of a lot of what we're going to see in the book of Judges, which is sort of this unfortunate cycle that Israel went through historically uh, during this time period where the book of Judges sort of uh, quantifies this time historically for Israel as a time when uh, there was no king in those days and everyone did what was right in his own eyes and how that individual attitude became a collective attitude among the nation and really led to their deterioration morally and spiritually uh, during this time period. And, and, and really, you'll see as we begin to move into chapter 2 now, uh, chapter 2 really is a very fitting picture of, I think you could say two things, of the utter failure and the rebellious heart attitude of humanity that's very clear we see just the the utter failure of man and the continuous uh, inclination of man to turn away from God to be rebellious against God and his ways is just a chronic uh, struggle in their life and mirrored together with that or like a parallel line running next to that we also see in the midst of that the enduring love and the continuous grace of God it kind of reminds us of the book of Romans where it says in the New Testament, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Uh, you know, you would expect to read uh, if it were just just uh, and complete justice where sin abounds, judgment abounds. <laughs> Uh, and yet so many times because God is gracious, not that God doesn't discipline those whom he loves. The Bible teaches that God judges at times and that's necessary for uh, him to be righteous and to do what is just uh, in situations. And there are times where God needs to intervene and do that to get our attention, to turn our hearts back on course. Uh, but the reality is, is, boy, it is amazing how even in God's judgment and God's discipline, how it is so mingled with his mercy and his grace towards us as people despite the utter failure of humanity and our continual rebelliousness against God and his goodness in so many ways. In chapter 2, you'll see really paints that picture very clearly as sort of the umbrella over what we're going to look at here. So look at me in verse 1. It begins by telling us here, Then the angel of the Lord, and we'll begin to see this title more often as we start to go through the Old Testament, this title of the angel of the Lord. It says, The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal. Remember, that was where the tabernacle was for a short season of time uh, when they first came over. That was where they circumcised the men of Israel, where they sort of re committed themselves to God. Uh, Gilgal was a place, it seems, where there was a spiritual renewal among the people, where they celebrated uh, the Passover once again there at Gilgal. It's where Joshua, remember, had that encounter with the commander of the Lord's army, where he was told, take off your sandals for your standing on holy ground. So Gilgal was this very special place of great significance spiritually. And it says that the angel of the Lord came from that place where often they would return to and they seemed to have encounters with the Lord there. And he came up to Bochum where they were 
and said to them, here comes this message now, the word angel simply means messenger, the idea uh, of the word angel. And this messenger, this angel of the Lord came and said to them, I led you up from Egypt, brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said to you, I will never break my covenant with you, <clears throat> and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land and you shall tear down their altars. So this message now comes and I want you to take notice how the message when it comes, it's very much in the first person. Uh, and you get the sense here, I led you up from Egypt. Well, who led God's people up from Egypt? God did. Jehovah God did. Uh, God declares that in other sections in his word in Ezekiel 20 and Deuteronomy 1 and Genesis 17. The, some of these statements being made here come from some of these other passages where God directly in the first person made these same statements. I brought you up from Egypt. He says, I was the one who brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. God told Abraham he was going to give this land to him in Genesis uh, all the way back in the first book of the Bible. And and I said, I will never break my covenant. Again, that should be capitalized the word my there, God's covenant. Uh, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. These are all things that are declarations that God has made and things that God did. God brought them up. God gave them the land because he's the uh, creator and the possessor of the heavens and the earth. He assigned the land to Israel uh, and gave that as a covenant to them. God made this covenant with the Jewish nation and you notice that this is being stated in the first person and it's the angel of the Lord who's saying this again the word angel simply means messenger and a lot of times when we see this personage the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament what it typically is and we have to always evaluate the context but I think here the context is very clear many times what this is is what we call a Theophany, or what some might call a Christophany, which is basically a term that speaks of a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ before he came in the incarnation as a man during a time when he was born as a virgin and then lived among us as a man for a time. Again, remember, the life of Jesus did not begin when he was born by the Virgin Mary. Uh, that was when his life as a man began. That was when his human life took existence. But Jesus, being a part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the eternally existent God. He's the eternally existent Son of God. Uh, and so there are times where it seems that Jesus showed up, Jesus appeared, uh, and came in a form, uh, in somewhat at times a, a human form, representing himself temporarily and then stepping back again uh, and came into humanity prior to the time when he came in a sense uh, most fully or uh, if you would more permanently where he actually lived as a man for 30 plus years during the time of his ministry and his redemption and here uh, that seems to be what a reference is and I think whenever we see the angel of the Lord uh, always pay attention to that because sometimes many of the times that's what this is this is the Lord being referred to in this way as the messenger or angel of the Lord coming in this way bringing a message to his people speaking something but I think it's always important to look at the context because there are a few occasions where we see the same term used and that may not necessarily be that but the context usually helps us to find that but here this seems to be the Lord himself bringing this message firsthand to his people and look at the look what he's doing in the message he's reminding them of two things one 
of God's faithfulness to them. And how the Lord was utterly faithful. And he says, I led you up brought you out of Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. In other words, I brought your deliverance. I brought your salvation. I was the one that blessed you with the land and and I was the one that made a covenant with you. And And he declares us faithfulness. I will never break my covenant with you. That's the faithfulness of the Lord. The Bible tells us great is his faithfulness. And how wonderful it is that not only has the Lord done so many wonderful works, he's orchestrated our salvation, but he makes a relationship with us, a covenant, a promise with us. And he says, not based upon our performance, but based upon his promise, I will never break my covenant with you. Now, that is something that we should cherish because many of us, probably all of us in this room, to some extent have been in relationships, commitments, have made contracts, and and people have, have given their word, and then they've broken their commitment to us. They've broken the covenant. And sometimes in some of the most severe and painful ways, the wonderful thing is there is one who has made a covenant and a commitment to you and to me who will never break his commitment. His covenant will remain no matter how well you do and no matter how bad you're doing, he will remain faithful to that love commitment, to that covenant and commitment and promise that he's made to you and he'll never break that vow. He's going to keep that vow and like a, like a faithful marriage partner, the Bible often represents God as a husband, Jesus as a husband and us as the bride. He says, I'll never break my covenant with you. I'll remain faithful. You can always rely on that and have that assurance and uh, that peace of mind in your heart. And therefore, he asks in response to that, his people, Israel here, that they would in return be loyal to him. So he says to them there in verse 2, And you shall therefore make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, but instead tear down their altars. The idea is so that you don't begin to be inclined in your sinfulness and your temptation to begin to worship their gods or follow after their idols, because this would be a great temptation if they left those things and did not remove the opportunity for them to indulge their flesh in those ways. So God says, look, I've been greatly faithful to you. May my faithfulness, he's saying to his people, may that inspire you not to make covenants with these other people, not to enter into adulterous relationships. The book of James tells us that we're not to love the world or the things of the world, John tells us, that that, that, that when we do that, the love of the Father is not in us. That is, our greatest love should be towards the Lord, and so therefore we should be careful to not give that same love and devotion to him to other things and part of that means that at times we need to tear down and remove anything that could be a potential area where in a sense we might render devotion or allegiance at some other altar other than to the things of the Lord and for some of us that means literally finding ways of sort of tearing down the opportunities because we will always be inclined because of the sinfulness of our flesh to worship at another altar, to begin to give you know our time and attention and a devotion. And there are all these things that want to steal away our heart in idolatrous ways. And they may be different for all of us. And sometimes we need to be very practical, which is to just, like they would tear down an altar physically to say, look, what do I need to do to cut off this opportunity? And sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we need to just, in the same way they would tear down an altar, say, you know what, whatever the opportunity or the bridge is for me to get into that or become engaged in that or drawn away by that, 
I just need to cut off the opportunity because if I don't cut off the opportunity, my sinfulness may be drawn to go in that way. And obviously this became a problem for Israel. What he's telling them to do here is the very thing that they violate and they ignore. And this becomes their downfall. They make covenants with the people. They leave them in the land. They don't tear down their altars. And this leads to their decline morally and spiritually. Look what he goes on to say in verse 2. I've told you not to make covenants with the inhabitants of the land, but to tear down their altars. He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. And I don't know, maybe the Lord's saying that to one of you this evening. You've not obeyed my voice. You know what I said to you. You know what I told you to do to deal with this situation or, or you know what I have made clear to you. Why have you, and then he asks, why have you done this? Again, from God's perspective, understand he's God, this makes sense to me. From his perspective, he never sees any good reason why we would not obey his voice. Now, we may find a lot of good reasons why we don't obey the voice of someone else. We, we don't like their opinion or their input or their counsel or nobody's going to tell me what to do. No boss is going to be. Listen, when it comes to God, there is never a time. He is our creator. He is our maker. He's the one who we, if we're Christians, proclaim as Lord. Lord means master. It means someone rules over you. It means you submit to their authority all the time. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And, and so God says to his people, Israel here, I've told you to do these things, but yet you've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And I don't think God's saying this at this moment anyway with a, a sense of, of harshness or, or judgmentalism as much as almost a sense of like wh why would you do that what are you thinking are you really thinking not obeying my voice is going to work better for you are you really think listening to your own reasoning or your own voice or the voice of someone else and not obeying my voice is going to work out better for you long term as a nation, as a culture, you know, a, a, as a people, as an individual, do you really think that's going to work better? Why would you not obey my voice? And from God's mindset, it, this doesn't make sense. And sometimes I think he challenges us in that way, and perhaps he would be challenging some of us this evening. You haven't obeyed my voice. Why? Why have you done this? Why have you done this? And, and why we have opportunity to perhaps turn and Lord forgive me for that and, and help me to reconcile that and to be obedient to what you've been saying to me he then says verse 3 notice therefore and notice there's always consequence to that therefore I also said I will not drive them out before you but they those who would have been driven out they shall become thorns in your side that means painful and their gods shall become a snare to you so notice there's always consequences to disobedience. God was telling them to drive out the people and to tear down the altars of worship in that land of foreign gods because he says, if you don't do that, these things will just become problematic things in your life and you will become ensnared to these things. Disobedience always leads to slavery. It always leads to bondage. It never works out better. We may think, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I need to indulge this. And so we choose to indulge it. But the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, just for a brief moment, until the devil, after we bite the worm, yanks the hook into our mouth. And then all of a sudden, what was pleasant momentarily becomes incredibly painful. 
And it becomes a thorn in our side and something that then becomes a source of pain in our life that just leads to problematic situations personally or or nationally. And and it as well becomes something that then snares us. And then we find ourselves in bondage to things, in bondage to things individually. Jesus said in the New Testament in John's Gospel, he says that he who sins becomes a slave to sin. So sin's not just wrong. Jesus says the the bigger thing is sin is something that's ensnaring. It's something that leads to bondage. It's not just that it's wrong to do it. Yes, it's wrong to do it. But Jesus also says the reason why I don't want you to sin is because sin has this power and this potential to then ensnare and control your life. And then all of a sudden you find yourself trapped in sin. You find yourself ensnared in a situation or a habit or you know some heart attitude of bitterness or unforgiveness and all of a sudden we find ourselves hurting like a thorn poking us and ensnared in something. He says, verse 4, So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, which again, that term basically means weeping. That's why they called the name of that place weeping, because it was there that they lifted up their voices and wept upon hearing these things. And it also says, verse 5, that they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now take notice what happens here. The Lord brings reproof to them. He basically rebukes them for their sin, for their disobedience, not obeying his voice and what they're doing. And as a response to that, it says the people do two things. It says they begin to weep and it says they start to make sacrifices to the Lord. Now, here they are going through the motions of what looks like repentance. But when you study out the history of Israel as a whole and what's happening in context, it doesn't seem that this is genuine repentance going on. It seems it's a little bit more like crocodile tears and going through religious routines to try and bribe off God to try and get themselves back in good graces again. If somehow they can just sort of brush it under the rug and okay, okay like I, I know I'm sorry I got caught. Can we just move on now? You know, just like like kids do on occasion. You know, they're not necessarily sorry for what they've done. They're sorry they got caught. <laughs> It's the same thing like a lot of people who are incarcerated. A lot of people who are incarcerated, I've been in and out of prisons many times and with people, and people will genuinely shed tears and genuinely want to make great sacrifices to somehow atone for what they've done because they feel like if somehow they can make sacrifices or do religious works that somehow does that kind of you know wash off or pay off kind of what I've done and they're okay that there I sort of paid back and I can I get out now and the reality is is they're not genuinely repentant repentance means that you've had a change of mind that leads to a change of direction a change of behavior that's genuine repentance changing of the mind i've been thinking wrong doing what's wrong i have a different mindset that's wrong and so you turn around and that leads to then doing what's right and stopping what's doing wrong here the children of israel they're going to continue in the same pattern even though they're weeping here and they're making sacrifices to the lord so this really seems to be what would be referred to as worldly sorrow rather than godly sorrow in fact if you want to hold your finger here turn with me just real quickly if you would to second corinthians chapter 7 because here's a new testament description of how there is a difference second corinthians chapter 7 
if you'll turn over and if you look down in verse look with me in verse 9 this is kind of a New Testament description of, of sort of what I'm describing here and what seems to be going on among Israel nationally they're weeping they're making sacrifices but it doesn't seem like genuine repentance he says verse 9 of 2nd Corinthians 7 now I rejoice Paul says not that you were made sorry but that your sorrow led to repentance notice sorrow that led to repentance not just sorrow that led to a few religious routines and okay I jumped through the hoops just tell me the hoops I'll do the dot the I, cross the T, push a couple religious buttons and okay, can we just move on now? There you go. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry and boom, boom, boom. And, 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 and that's not leading to repentance. It's just doing some religious routine. So he says, your sorrow led to repentance for you were made sorry, look at it, in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. Here's the verse 10. Look, for godly sorrow, very different, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world just produces death the idea is it, it keeps pursuing the same path that leads to self-destruction there's two kinds of sorrow godly sorrow that leads to genuine repentance and change and then there's worldly sorrow that just stays on the self-destructive path and pretends to be sorry but just keeps doing the same thing and that leads to destruction and just to death because sin leads to death and ruining lives verse 11 he says then for observe this thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner here's what godly sorrow and and genuine biblical repentance will look like keep this in mind for yourself if you genuinely want to repent of something uh, and if you know someone else that says i'm ready to repent well this is what repentance will look like it doesn't sound like something it looks like something we don't talk about repentance we see repentance he says what diligence it produced in you when a person is repentant they'll be very diligent about making changes what clearing of yourselves the idea again is they, they want to make right what they've made wrong they want to clear things up they don't want to just continue doing the same things and ignore what happened what indignation what fear there's a reverence that's come over the heart what vehement desire notice there's strong desire within them now to want to radically turn from what's wrong and zealously with strong desire pursue what is right and righteous what zeal what vindication in all things notice you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter again notice there's evidence in time that can be seen it can be measured it can be proved. It can be something that is revealed and proved out to people that they've, they want to clear things up in the matter and not just continue in the same things that they're involved with. So come back to, to Judges with me. And, and it seems that unfortunately this is kind of historically what the nation is doing this time. They want to be religious, but they don't really want to be repentant and live right with God. And that's always a very dangerous thing. Religion is a great, great opiate many a times that just desensitizes people's conscience to really living righteous it's very easy to be religious verse 6 and when joshua had dismissed the people now wait a minute that's when joshua died we read at the end of chapter uh, 24 of the book of joshua this is just sort of a brief flashback it seems judges gives us to lead into the next section a flashback of joshua's death when joshua dismissed the people the children of israel went each to his own inheritance possessed the land and the people served the lord 
all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had been, or excuse me, seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, verse 8, the servant of the Lord died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaosh. So basically, again, a reiteration, a flashback, sort of building the context of now this next season historically after the death of Joshua, this next generation rises up. We have here a, a reiteration of what's given in the very end of Joshua's book itself. But again, notice this emphasis. Certainly, things are going to deteriorate after Joshua's life. Verse 7 says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of his elders that outlived him who saw the great works the Lord had done. Now, that tells us two things. Number one, it does tell us that Joshua was a man of influence. And apparently the leaders that served around him were men of great influence because it says the people served the Lord in the days of Joshua. So listen, don't think, well, I have no influence, I have no impact. Well, Joshua's willingness to serve the Lord, and remember Joshua was the one that said, you choose for yourself what you want to do, but as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And Joshua had that attitude that he was going to stand for the Lord and serve the Lord. And because of the godly man Joshua was, he was a man who wholly followed the Lord, a man of great faith and a very godly individual. He did have influence to a great extent because a lot of people were inspired by Joshua's life to serve the Lord. It says that many people served the Lord in the days of Joshua and even his elders who outlived him a few years after he had died. So uh, it pays to serve the Lord. Your life does matter. Your, your influence and your sphere of influence is something that is important in the generation that you're in. That being said, uh, one person's influence always has a limit to it. And ultimately, the next generation after Joshua died off and word of his life and his personal influence after his death no longer was there, uh, this tragedy is, is that people then were not having their own experience with the Lord and they began to go south spiritually. So when we're alive, let's have influence to the best of our ability that we can, but realize there's always a limit to our influence and ultimately we can't, we can't carry someone else along spiritually. Someone can't ride our coattails spiritually. Our children have to embrace Jesus for themselves. Other people have to take the hem and the hand of Jesus for themselves and walk with Jesus because there may come a time where then we are removed uh, and our influence will no longer be. And that was the case with Joshua as he now dies. And verse 10 picks up with rather the sad commentary to say, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers notice here's where it begins now another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel so that generation dies the generation of Joshua they saw great miracles they had a godly leader. They were people who knew the Lord. They served the Lord. They experienced his works. They were having a firsthand encounter and experience with God themselves. And so they were walking with him. But then it says another generation, the next generation arose. And it says they did not know the Lord nor his works. Now, certainly 
again, I think there are two things here. First of all, uh, you cannot say that they did not intellectually have information about the Lord. <laughs> that would be impossible. The Bible tells us that the pagan people in the land of Canaan heard about the great works of God and his miracles and so forth. So certainly if the pagan, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, these people were saying, we've heard about the God of Israel and the great feats and miracles. It wasn't that they didn't know intellectually information and facts and things about the Lord. What it's seeming to indicate is in their own personal experience, that word know the Lord would probably better be, be rendered they did not acknowledge the Lord or his works. That is for their own personal lives. They knew the information. They had the facts. They had the education spiritually. They had become acquainted with these things, but th they never embraced them things for themselves. They did not know. It doesn't say they didn't know of the Lord because they knew of the Lord, but they didn't know the Lord. You see what I'm saying? There's a difference. It's one thing to know of the Lord and to know of the works of the Lord, having heard it from others and seen it in the lives of others. But it's a whole different thing to know the Lord yourself and to choose to know the Lord, to acknowledge the Lord for yourself. And, and this next generation that rose up afterwards, they didn't acknowledge the Lord for themselves. They didn't have their own experience for the Lord with the Lord themselves. Now, that could have been two things. It could, one part of that could have been maybe a little bit of the negligence of the parents. Maybe the parents didn't quite do their job the way they should to adequately help their children come to that connection point. And I think it's an important thing in our role as parents and our parental ministry and our role in this generation, always looking back and reaching to the next generation that we understand that it's one thing to be exposed to to the Lord and exposed to the things of the Lord, it's another thing to have an experience with the Lord. Those are two completely different things. And in our exposing our children to the Lord, in our exposing the next generation behind us to the things of the Lord, we need to make sure that at some point we also help them to understand that they also need to have their own experience with the Lord themselves. We're doing a great disservice if we're just giving them the information and thinking, well, that's good enough. Let them do what they want with it. I understand they have a choice. And clearly you see here, they do have a choice because these children in the next generation chose not to know the Lord. Was that partially the parental failure of the ministry of the parents in that generation? Maybe. Could be a little bit of failure on that end. It could be a little bit of failure that the prior generation didn't care enough about the next generation spiritually coming up behind them. And I think as a church, we have to be careful of that. We have to be careful that we don't neglect the importance of, listen, if we die, there's another generation. And we need to make sure this next generation knows the Lord and knows the works of the Lord and how we can work and that they've had their own personal experience. But at the end of the day, that next generation also has to choose that for themselves. They have to want that for themselves. They need to have their own experience and their own encounter with the Lord. And tragically, we read here, this begins the decline in the nation of Israel. One generation knew him and experienced his works. The next generation did not acknowledge him nor his work. And notice when you reject the Lord experientially and there's no experience, the obvious happens. Verse 11, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and serve the Baals. So 
if you're not having an experience with the Lord, then you're going to indulge your flesh. You're going to serve something else. If you don't serve the Lord, you're going to serve something else, and this is what they did. If you're not having your own experience with the Lord, then you don't care what the Lord's opinion or perspective is on your life. So they didn't didn't matter to them. It says they began to do evil in the sight of the Lord. The idea is they had no sense of accountability to God in their lives. There was no fear of God in their life. There wasn't that sense of, listen, what we do, we have to give account to God for this. And I think this is one of the clear indications is has someone really had a genuine encounter with the Lord? Have they genuinely had an experience with the Lord? I, I want to see in my own children's life if they've genuinely had their own encounter and their own experience with the Lord that they care about what they do not in the sight of dad but in the sight of the Lord because there's a sense of they're having an experience with the Lord and so, so they have a sense of accountability to the Lord. They feel a sense of accountability to the Lord. If you see in, in your children or young people no sense of interest or accountability to the Lord themselves, you might want to pray a little harder. You might want to wake up to the reality that just because your kids grew up in a Christian home doesn't make them naturally morph into a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you morph into a car. It doesn't happen. They need to have their own encounter with the Lord. And we need to want to see that in their lives. In this next generation, it says, they just did evil in the sight of the Lord. They began to serve the Baals. They forsook the Lord, indicates abandoned him, the Lord God of their fathers. They chose not to follow the God that their parents had taught them about and had raised them in. They exercised their free will who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they followed, notice, other gods. Again, everybody's going to worship something. They chose to follow other things from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So again, we see, we, we are naturally religious people, so either you're going to serve the Lord and be faithful to the Lord and bow your knee to the Lord and worship Him, or... You're going to abandon the Lord and you're going to bow your knee and you're going to serve other things. Uh, and, and, and this is just a reality to understand for our own lives and each generation needs to recognize this. And in a lot of ways, this is a sad thing when the next generation comes around and they have all the information and everything on the horizontal, but nothing's ever happened on the vertical. And this becomes the downfall of any ministry. This becomes the downfall of any family, the next generation having a spiritual legacy and following the Lord. This becomes a downfall of nations as well. Our nation, the nation of Israel, and here they began to do this and provoke the Lord to anger. It says they forsook the Lord. They served Baal and Ashtoreth. And again, Baal, we'll see it many times. Baal is basically the, the god uh, in that day, sort of the, the god of intellectualism. He was the god of nature. Uh, and so the idea of whenever you see Baal and you see various names attached to him, he was the god of, of weather, the god of nature. The idea is an Ashtoreth was basically the goddess, female goddess of fertility. Uh, so you have one which is the worship of intellectualism and the worship of Ashtoreth basically was the worship of sensuality and pleasure. And, you know, and let's be very candid. That's the same thing everybody's worshiping today. 
worshiping knowledge and, and self and intelligence and feeling superior. And then if not, th- th- work in combined with that, they're worshiping sensuality and some form of pleasure or sexual immorality. And these, these are the same things uh, that were gods in that day that people set up. And what are they? People basically set up gods that meet their desires <laughs> so that they can satisfy what they want to do. And so this is very simple as they did this even with these pagan deities and the, the, the practices of these uh, worship uh, rites were very debauched and extremely child sacrifice, temple prostitution. I mean, it just was very vile, the things that they did under the guise of their religious practices in these things. Verse 14, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now, the anger of the Lord sounds bad enough. I don't ever want the anger of the Lord to be hot. <laughs> that just, just doesn't sound good. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. You know, I look at our culture and I think, boy, so many parallels, God. I, I hate to envision the possibility you know would that possibly be true as well that the anger of the lord would be hot against america because of the things that we're doing having forsaken the lord and worshiping and serving so many immoral and carnal things that we do as a culture not knowing him turning from him as a nation verse 14 says so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who spoiled uh, despoiled them he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. So notice, very obvious, God warned them so many times in Deuteronomy and in the prior places If you follow me and obey me and obey my commandments and keep and live by my precepts, you'll be blessed, you'll be strong, you'll prosper in what you do. But if you turn away from me, those same things will be drawn away from you and there will be consequences and calamity and problems. And we read here, as the Lord said to them, he basically allowed them to have the fruit of their own ways. The Bible says the backslider and heart will be filled with the fruit of his own ways. And God here basically just let them have, you want to worship those things? Then this is the fruit of living that way. And so God began to retract from them his favor and his protection. He allowed them to be delivered over into the hands of people who then ruled over them. He took away his hedge of protection. Their enemies began to conquer them. They no longer could stand. That is, they became weakened and they lost control and became ensnared. Again, these are all symptomatic consequences of sin, whether in our personal lives, whether on a national level, wherever they went, it says the hand of the Lord, rather than being for them to favor them, seemed like was against them, that they were, in a sense, being resisted by God's favor and blessing, and there was nothing but calamity and great distress. Listen, there's nothing beneficial that comes out of sin. I mean, just read the list there. Oh, I, I, I want to do what I want to do. Serving God is too confined, and I wanna, I'm going to have fun. And, okay, here's what you're going to end up with. You're going to be delivered. You're going to be into your enemy's hands. You're going to be weakened. You're going to lose control. You're going to become ensnared to things. God's going to work against you, and you're going to be greatly distressed mentally and emotionally. You're going to start to become unstable and lose your mind. That sounds fun. 
I seem like I have enough troubles, troubles trying to serve the Lord. Why do I want to add some more into that? And here God warns them as a people. This is exactly what they chose to ignore. They brought upon themselves these calamities, these consequences of their sin. Enemies would rule over them. But notice verse 16, nevertheless, this is called grace. <laughs> nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. Again, these were, as we said, deliverers, little uh, sort of... Uh, you know, uh, little saviors, if you would, who would come militarily and liberate them when enemies would rule over them because of their sin. He raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now watch the cycle. This is the description of the book of Judges. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but played the harlot with other gods. The idea is, again, spiritual adultery is the picture there. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord that they did so. So God graciously, I mean, he could have just said, listen, okay, that's what you want, that's it. You don't want to serve me? Fine. Self-destruct. But instead, nevertheless, the Lord retreats into his grace and he sees them distressed. He sees them in bondage, weakened, ensnared, miserable. And the Lord is moved in compassion and he raises up deliverers or these judges. We'll see uh, you know, over a dozen of them in the book of Judges. This is what happens historically like a cycle. And they would come and they'd set the people free. And then as soon as they would set the people free, there'd be some peace for a while. And then very soon afterwards, they would begin to ignore their leadership and their spiritual counsel. And it says, verse 17, and they would then turn quickly from the way. So quickly. Again, the cycle, they would just turn back to the old ways again. They would turn quickly back into the same things once again. Verse 18, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Look at this, verse 18. This shows you the heart of God. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. So as God saw them in the misery of their sin, again, he didn't abandon them. Now, now think about this. Remember what we just read a few verses ago? The, word, the terms we read, they forsook the Lord. They abandoned the Lord. They forsook the Lord. But God, in his enduring love and his continuous grace, never forsook them. At times he would pull back because he wouldn't endorse what they were doing. He would pull back. He wouldn't enable it. And he'd say, if that's the course you want to run, I don't need you. Just create your own misery. And he would pull back and he would let them suffer and struggle to sort of get their attention but after a while, he was so moved in his love for them that he always would retreat into his grace and his enduring love. And again, he would raise up another judge. He would raise up another one of these deliverers that would come and would help them and get them out of it because he would see them groaning and he would want to get them out of that condition. And man, I don't know about you, but that's an incredible testament to God's patience and to God's kindness. And how often have, have, do, do we look, you know, at, let me look at the things that our own country has done and are doing. And you would think, oh my, God. I was talking to somebody today who was, you know, an older individual in a nursing home during a visitation. And, and we were talking about that, you know, concept. Many of you heard probably the statement before. I think one of the, Graham said it originally, that if God doesn't judge America at some point, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
I mean, sometimes we look and think, oh my goodness, I mean, but yet God is so patient and he keeps enduring and he continues to strive and, and there's always another wave of his grace. You think, man, there's been so many waves of God's grace and his patience and, and yet God, so many times he's so moved with, with our pity when he sees us in those conditions like the prodigal coming home and if a heart just gradually begins to turn back to him. He, he ushers in again a wave of his grace and he raises up another opportunity. He loves to restore. He loves to rescue. I mean, how wonderful. Not that we should ever take that for granted and abuse it, but the testament of the God that we serve that's so kind to us nationally. He's so gracious to us individually. Certain This is at times our story. We, we, we live in these cycles. And, and we just go through these cycles and the Lord's gracious to us and we get all on fire for the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord. And, we, and then the next thing you know, a person, they so, I, I see this so many times, then they, then, they, then they so quick, they just turn away again. And they go back and they jump into the same filth again. And then the Lord's gracious to them. He gets their attention, gets them out of their misery, delivers them, shows his power, comes to them, breakthrough. And oh yeah, praise the Lord. And then they're all on fire for the Lord for 15 minutes. And then they go right back into the same thing again. And it's an incredible testament to God's grace, but there's also a part of that where we also think, man, why do you want to live in that cycle? That is not God's will. That's not God's ideal to live in that chronic cycle of just continuing to be like that rather than living in the freedom and the continuous stability and, and blessing of walking in the will of the Lord. And, and this just became a cycle. Look at verse 19. It came to pass... When the judge was dead, this is what we'll see, the whole book of Judges. Here it is. It came to pass when the judge would die that they, look at the term, reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. And they did not cease from their own doings or from their stubborn way. They always reverted. Reverted, reverted back. Such a sad thing. If the Lord's delivered us out of something. God, help us not to revert, not to revert back to it, to go back to it again if God's delivered us out. And notice, when they reverted back, it says they behaved more corruptly. That shows sin's progressive. If the Lord delivers us out of something and then we revert and go back into some sinful habit or sinful you know, practice that the Lord delivers us out of, the sad thing is, is it's progressive. And a lot of times when we go back we go deeper and darker and further. Because when we return to it, we've already pushed the envelope this far. When we first maybe started falling into that sinful practice, we were only, we were only right here. But we get all the way into to this degree of really indulging it, and then the Lord delivers us out of it. And when we go back to it, we're so familiar, we start right at that dark degree. And then when we go back, we just go deeper and darker and more filthy and further. And we just put ourselves at greater risk. It says they would not cease from their own doings in their stubborn way. They just reverted back. And this was just a sad, sad cycle historically for the nation and a cycle that we as people, if we're not careful, can all sometimes relate to that God doesn't want for our lives. That's very destructive. Then the anger of the Lord, it says, was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation, again, notice the nation, has transgressed. That doesn't mean made mistakes. That means willing disobedience. That means knowing where the line is and stepping over it brazenly anyway. Knowing what the truth is and saying, I don't care. I want to do what I want anyway. I want to make the rules. 
This nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice. They ignored the testimony of God's voice and listened to their own voices of their desires and opinions and ideas and their intellects wanting to redefine things morally and spiritually. God says, I will also no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when they died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So as the result of their sin and their rebellion against the Lord, God did not do for them all that he could have done for them. It says God left some of these nations. Now, the beginning of chapter 3 will describe some of the nations that God left. It says, notice, to test them. He left these nations there to test them. Verse 22 says, whether they would keep the ways of the Lord and walk in them or not. So again, God leaving those nations there as opportunities to enter into pagan practices and idolatry and carnal ways and sinful living, those availabilities and opportunities being left in their presence. It wasn't so that God could discover something. God knows all things. It was to test them in the sense of giving them an option to choose so that God could prove out very justly the reality of whether they wanted to serve him or whether they chose not to serve him. To prove out to themselves, sort of a self-examination. God leaves the opportunity and says, I'm going to leave you the option. I'm going to allow you to choose. I'm going to leave you there the opportunity to test you. The idea is to sort of prove out your genuineness and your sincerity. Uh, and why? So that then when they chose what was wrong, as unfortunately they would sometimes, there would be no right or reason to say, God, why did you do this to me? God, how could you let this happen to me? And we smile because isn't that what everybody says? Oh, why, why, if God's a God of love, why would he let this happen? Well, well, did God force you to smoke a joint? Did God force you to cheat on your spouse? Did God force you to rob a bank or you know, pursue a... Did God force you to start staring at pornography? I, I, I think that was there, but he allowed you to make the choice. And it tested and proved out, not to him, but to you, that like James 1 says, when we sin, we should never blame God. But we should realize we were drawn away by our own desire and therefore we should have nothing but a heart of humility and brokenness to say, God, I did this. Oh God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that if I repent, you'll come to my rescue and forgive me. And that as a nation, that as a nation, we would to God would come to a place where instead of shaking our fist at God, that we would be on our knees begging God for mercy for the condition of our country and the condition even of the church in this day and age, which is supposed to be the salt and light in our country. Yeah, I'll be very honest. Things, well, the older I'm getting, things are irritating me more, but certain things, um, well, I can't believe they don't let us pray in school. They don't, well, first of all, as long as there's tests, kids are always going to pray in school. That's, that's a pretty obvious thing. They don't let us pray in school. Well, do you come pray at church? Oh, you can pray at church whenever you want. We want to complain about all these things that the world and the secular environment doesn't let us do when the reality is as Christians, a lot of times, we don't take advantage of those own things ourselves. 
within the body of Christ and all the freedoms we have. But yet we want to we want to pick it and complain and, and bark about all that kind of stuff when the reality is is we could do those things in our own homes and we still have the freedom in our country to do those things in the church. And many times as a church, we're very apathetic to those things ourselves. And again, such a, such a reality check that God would say, look, these things are there to kind of test and prove out to yourself. Be honest with your own self-evaluation, where you're at individually, culturally as a people. Let's stand. Let's, let's pray together. We'll turn to the